We've been looking at Psalm 3 over a number of weeks. It's been a mini-series on Psalm 3. And this evening we'll consider the last two verses of a psalm in which we've seen King David fleeing from his son Absalom, who stole the hearts of the people, and he stole his father's kingdom from him. David had been a valiant man of war, even from his youth, but now in Psalm 3, things seem to be somewhat different. And many people are considering him to be forsaken by God, according to verse 2. Look at that in (coughs) Psalm 3. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. How wrong those people were. For example, in verse 5, we considered the peace that David experienced with him saying, I laid me down and slept. I awakened for the Lord sustained me. This is a man who was fleeing from Jerusalem, fleeing from those who who were, who were uh, his enemies. And yet he said, I awaked because thou did sustain me. That was an expression of faith in the Lord his God. And even though David fled, he most certainly was not afraid. As he said in verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. How could David have been so unafraid? How could he have experienced so much peace? His trust was in the Lord, who was his shield, his glory, the lifter up of his head and his sustainer. We need to keep in mind that the Lord was very much with his servant David. That needs to be our backdrop. That the Lord, we've seen this in the past weeks, the Lord was with David, David knew it. Keep that as your backdrop as we look at the final two verses of Psalm 3. We're going to consider this evening the title of my sermon, Arise, O Lord, Save Me. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. David called on the Lord to arise and to save him. That really is something, isn't it? Did he, did David imagine the creator of heaven and earth to be sitting down and having a rest while David was fleeing from all those who were troubling him. Not at all. That much is clear from those previous verses that we've just briefly visited again. David's experience was one of the Lord being his shield and sustaining him. God is not a man like David is. David laid himself down and slept. God doesn't need to lay him down, lay himself down. He doesn't need to sit down. He doesn't need to have a rest. 
Even where it is written in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, that on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. We needn't imagine for one moment that God sat down to have a rest after he had created all things. It is anthropomorphic language with human characteristics being attributed to God. And what is being said is simply that God desisted from his created, creative handiwork, having completed it in six days. Another use of anthropomorphic language can be found in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1, where the Lord says, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The Lord said that in context of him not being confined to a temple like some idol might be. Elsewhere, the son of David, King Solomon, rightly said, Great is our God above all gods, but who is able to build him an house, seeing that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Dare any of us put a limit on how great God is. He is almighty God. When I think of Jesus upholding all things by the, the omnipotent, by the word of his power. I think of Jesus holding everything in the palm of his hand. Again, that's anthropomorphic, isn't it? But that gives some idea of just how great God is, and even that doesn't even begin to touch on how great God is. And God does not sit down, he does not sleep, he does not slumber, that's what we're told in in the scriptures. Coming back to Psalm 3 and verse 7, we can safely assume that Jehovah God was not having a rest. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. What can be seen is King David exercising faith, not in himself, but in the Lord, whom he referred to as my God. Look at verse 7 again. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Again, we see David expressing and exercising his faith in the Lord, his God. He was calling on God for deliverance when he called on God to rise up and to save him. After what he perceived to be a time of inaction from the Lord. And David was lifting up his eyes towards heaven and calling on his God, from whom his help and salvation came. He looked to no one else. He most certainly did not look to himself. He looked to the Lord to, for deliverance from his enemies. David's complete trust in the Lord his God is very evident in the words that follow. David said, Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. To strike someone on the cheek is not only violent, 
It is seen as an insult and it is reproachful. It is disparaging. That was Job's complaint about his comforters who were troubling him. Job said, They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. So much for Job's comforters, eh? The Lord Jesus Christ was himself reproached by wicked men who plucked out his beard, they spat on him, they blindfolded him, and they buffeted him. They punched him in the face, having blindfolded him. Jesus was cast outside the gates of Jerusalem, where he was crucified between two thieves. When he was suspended on a wooden cross, he was mocked and he was given vinegar to drink. And if you belong to Jesus, believing that he was wounded for your transgressions and he was bruised for your iniquity, you too can expect to be reproached for Christ's sake. As Jesus said to his disciples, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. When you are reproached, rather than retaliate, rejoice as one who has been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name that is above every name. Even Moses of old, 1500 years before the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. Moses, he esteemed the reproach or he considered the reproach of Christ. Greater than the riches of Egypt. Greater than everything he had as a prince of Egypt. He chose rather to suffer the reproach of Christ. He was looking ahead. He had his eyes fixed upon the promised Messiah who would come into the world. As it turned out 1500 years later. Although I'm sure Moses wouldn't have been, wouldn't have known that much, the date, the year. But nevertheless, he was looking ahead. As indeed, we look to Jesus. And we suffer the reproach of Christ. Joyfully, if that makes any sense to you. Here in Psalm 3, verse 7, it's not the enemies of Christ who are said to have done the smiting, is it? Have a look at it again. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies. The Lord is the one who's doing the smiting, striking on the cheek, the cheekbone. Not only that, David went on to say, Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. The Lord has broken the teeth of the ungodly. To break the teeth of the ungodly is to render them powerless, like toothless tigers. And that is what happened time and again when God gave David the victory over his various enemies, such as the Philistines and the Edomites, whom David refers to in this verse as the ungodly. 
which indeed they were. They were idolaters. The enemies of David were idolaters. They worshipped idols. As such, David's enemies were God's enemies. I wonder where that leaves you. Let me tell you very plainly that if you are not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, the wrath of God, whom the Bible describes as a consuming fire, abides on you, and even now, the wrath of God abides on you, and something far more dreadful than having your teeth broken awaits you if you do not repent. At the final judgment, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, them which do wickedness and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a very sobering thought that is worthy of much consideration. Don't dismiss it. We're reading here in this verse about the Lord smiting the enemies upon the cheek and breaking teeth. That's nothing to what will happen at the judgment. When Jesus comes again. It's a very sobering thought. And it should cause you to have sleepless nights. As the hand of God rests heavy upon you. And as your own conscience troubles you incessantly because of your sin and your rebellion against a holy and righteous God. If you are someone who has not turned to God acknowledging your sins against thee And the only have I sinned. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for your acceptance before a holy and righteous God. There is good news. It is the very best news of all. And that takes us to the eighth and final verse where we read, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord, thy blessing is upon thy people. In the immediate context, looking at verse 8 there, David was saying that he had no expectation, no confidence of saving himself from his earthly enemies. That much has already become abundantly clear in the in the preceding verses, but there's more, much more going on in this final verse. He's not simply saying in verse 8 that the Lord will deliver him from his earthly enemies, such as the Philistines, the Edomites and who else, even his own people who have, who have risen up against him. It speaks of salvation from sin by the grace of God alone. As Spurgeon said, this verse contains the sum and substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Search the scripture scripture through and you must, if you read it with a candid mind, 
be persuaded that the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is the great doctrine of the word of God. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. This is a point concerning which we are daily fighting. Our opponents say salvation belongeth to the free will of men, if not to men's merit, yet at least to men's will. But we hold and teach that salvation from first to last, in every iota of it, belongs to the Most High God. It is God that chooses his people. He calls them by his grace. He quickens them, which means that he makes them spiritually alive. And he does so by his spirit and keeps them by his power. It is not of man, neither by man, not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. May we all learn this truth experimentally, for our proud flesh and blood will never permit us to learn it in every any other way. The Apostle Paul, he said to the Christians in Ephesus, And you, have he quickened, and were dead, in trespasses and sins, this is concerning salvation, you have he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, that's a reference to the devil and his demons, the powers of darkness, among whom also we all had our conversation, our conduct in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and have raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I love that. That's, that's speaking of now. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, God has done these things for you. He has made you to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's speaking about now. Even now you have boldness, a holy boldness, to enter into heaven itself by the blood of Jesus. Let's not forget, dear Christian, as someone who trusts in Christ, your position before God is one of being in Christ. Where is Christ now? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you are in Christ. And, you know, for that reason, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest or the, the deposit of your heavenly inheritance. Not just the guarantee of it. He is the earnest, the deposit. You already have a taste of heaven, even now in this world, this wicked world, even in the sinful flesh. Such is the certainty of the heavenly hope that you have. That God has given you. No wonder 
this we we say this world is not our home it's not is it if you're a christian this world is not your home and you really are passing through as a stranger and a pilgrim like abraham was of old looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is god you look onwards and upwards to your home jesus has gone to prepare a place for you how wonderful it is. So, sorry, let's get back to what the Apostle Paul was saying here, if I can find it. Yeah. And have raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. It's always in and through Christ Jesus. Have you noticed that pattern? Everything is in Christ Jesus from beginning to end and everything else in between. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why am I saying all this? Why am I quoting Ephesians chapter 2? Look at verse 8 again. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. That's why I'm saying it. From start to finish, by grace are ye saved. God quickens you. He is the um, cause of your salvation. And he raises you up to newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everlasting life in Jesus. No boasting in heaven, Paul says. The point I'm trying to make is that just as David ascribed deliverance from his, 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 his earthly enemies completely and utterly to the Lord his God, so too does God completely and utterly save his people, including David, from the greatest of all enemies, which is not the Philistines, it's not the Edomites, it's not whoever your earthly enemies may be, the biggest enemy of all is sin. The Lord saves people purely by his grace, which means that salvation is completely undeserved, unmerited, unmerited. And we contribute nothing whatsoever. As such, there will be no one in heaven boasting or claiming any credit for his or her salvation, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. The person who is everlastingly saved from all his sins is united to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, by a God-given faith. Not something that you somehow manage to whip up in yourself. It's God-given. Your acceptance before God is not in yourself. It's in Christ, who, having lived a sinlessly perfect life, paid the debt of all your sins, past present and future including the sins that you will commit before the day's out whether it's in thought or word indeed paid the debt for all your sins at the cross and he rose again on the third day for your justification <coughs> we've already considered God smiting David's enemies and breaking 
the teeth of the ungodly. Applying that to the cross work of Christ. In the earliest gospel prophecy in the Bible, God said to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. I'm going to quote Spurgeon again. What Spurgeon said about that early prophecy, that early gospel promise. Spurgeon said, this is the first promise to fallen man. It contains the whole gospel and the essence of the covenant of grace. It has been in great measure fulfilled. The seed of the woman, even our Lord Jesus, was bruised in his head. And a terrible bruising it was. How terrible will be the final bruising of the serpent's head. This was virtually done when Jesus took away sin, vanquished death and broke the power of Satan. But it awaits a still fuller accomplishment at our Lord's second advent and in the day of judgment. And in fulfilment of that gospel promise, the Son of God did about 2,000 years ago, partake of flesh and blood, that through his own sacrificial death on the cross, he might destroy the devil who had the power over death. The power over death being sin. And by the grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ delivered from captivity and bondage to sin all who would ever trust in him. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he dealt a death blow to Satan at the cross. But as we know, the prince of this world, the devil, is still at large, still walking about to and fro as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he is on a short lead. And as I've said before, very recently, There is nothing that the devil can do to separate you, dear Christian, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Nothing at all. And even now, with the devil walking around like a roaring lion, the gospel is still being proclaimed. It's still being preached. That wonderful news of deliverance, salvation from sin, is still going out across the world. And day by day, people are still being saved. Those who are ordained unto eternal life. So, most certainly, the devil was dealt a death blow at the cross. And then finally, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, if you care to look yourselves at the end of, not now, but at the end of Revelation chapter 20, you'll see the devil will be cast into the lake of fire. That's that. That will be the end when Jesus comes again. Not surprisingly, the last thing that David said in (coughs) Psalm 3, verse 8 is, Thy blessing is upon thy people. 
to which the redeemed of the Lord add their Amen with thanksgiving in their hearts for salvation so full, so free, but one that came at such a great cost to the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed them with his own precious blood and who laid down his life at the cross. Dear Christian, how can you ever enumerate or list the blessings that you have? David said, thy blessing is upon thy people. You Christians, dear Christians, are God's people. You're his children. And you are blessed. How do you even begin to list those blessings that you have in Christ Jesus, your Lord? Blessings that must surely start with the forgiveness of all your iniquities. Not forgetting that you have everlasting life, you will never perish. And you have the absolute certain hope of heavenly glory. Suffice to say that you have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus your Lord. The great, the God of your salvation. Before we come to a close, let me just remind you that at the beginning of this sermon, we considered those words of David when he said, Arise, O Lord. For now the Lord Jesus Christ He is seated, we read in the scriptures, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Having been highly exalted after his work of redemption was finished. However, he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. He shall send forth his angels And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So, where does that leave you? What are you supposed to do if you are not yet trusting in Jesus for your salvation, the salvation that is spoken of that is spoken of in verse 8. What are you supposed to do, especially when we've already seen that salvation is 100% by the grace of God? David gives the answer in the last verse of the previous psalm, Psalm 2. The last verse there, just look over to Psalm 2, verse 12, where David says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. There we go. The blessed of the Lord here are the ones who kiss the Son. In other words, they, they, they acknowledge him for who he is. The Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. They bow down before him and they receive him as their saviour from sin. Therefore, if you have not already done so, repent and put your trust in Jesus and you 
will be saved. And the blessings of God, every blessing in spirit, in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, are yours. Amen. Amen. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen.